Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Viewpoints, the Viewpoints podcast, for the first time, Stuart Lloyd. He's also known as Stu Lloyd. He's a best-selling author and storyteller of military history, war books, music, creativity and travel books, 19 non-fiction books. He's got his latest publication out. This is a band I really enjoyed, and I think anybody in Australia would have or should have. It's The Mental as Anything Story by Stuart Lloyd. Started out just drinking. Be Bear, forward by Molly Meldrum, Puncher and Watman. It's out now in November 23. It's 36.95 trade paperback. Welcome, on that note, welcome to Viewpoint, Stuart Lloyd. G'day, Henry. Now, Fantastic. it's Stuart or Stu, which do you prefer? My mother prefers Stuart. <laughs> Parents always <laughs> like the, the long name, don't they? <laughs> I, I tell you why there is Stuart and there is Stu is basically, or well, colloquially, I'm I'm Stu to to, to many, but uh, many years ago, my distributors in Thailand of all places said, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's funny. There was this book being promoted last week by Stuart Lloyd, and we thought, oh, we we thought we handled all your stuff, and they went along to this book launch, and there was this British author called Stuart Lloyd, and she said, he even looked at you. I looked like you, sorry. And I said, that's a poor fellow. I, I can recommend a good plastic surgeon if he would like. But um, that caused a confusion. And at that point, I think this other Stuart Lloyd guy had a good sort of dozen books out. Mm-hmm. And I'd only had a handful of books out. And I thought, well, to avoid any confusion, I'll go with Stu Lloyd. But then over the intervening years, I, I seem to have kind of uh, outstripped him in terms of productivity and uh, prolific uh, authorliness. <laughs> so I'm now claiming <laughs> the title as the real Stuart Lloyd. <laughs> yes, yeah, so and we won't, won't argue with that. Uh, we were talking before we went on air, Stuart, that um, I did my, in doing my homework on you, you're a, you're a fascinatingly interesting person with a, a lot of different parts to you. And I checked up on a couple of your books, and uh, one of the books uh, that you've written is called Killer Questions. And being in leadership myself, I'm always interested in people's take on questions. And uh, in the book you say, having the right answer to the wrong question in business is worthless. And then, of course, the book's about how to shape better questions to create explosive breakthroughs. Now, I thought I'd put to you, since you've written the book and you must know something, about that, Stuart. What would be the key for me to create the better question uh, in relation to my first question to you, Stuart Lloyd, on your latest book, to create from you an explosive breakthrough, as you put it? Gee. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't help myself. I love a bit of mischief, Stuart. Well, what would you ask yourself first? This is hard talk. (laughs) My, My... my problem is I, I, I tend to kind of write books and then move on to the next shiny thing. And people then ask me about the the book or two or three uh, earlier that I'd written. And I go, wow, uh, did I write that? Or, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, or was it I, the other Stuart Lloyd? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, killer questions. That was the other guy. That's absolutely right, Henry. Not my book at all. Yes. Um, look, uh, Questioning is a really important thing. Asking the right questions, 
in, in order to expose, I guess, new and different answers. Because if we keep on asking the same question, and mm. honestly, it's no different to being a journalist. If you just keep asking the same questions of your interviewees, you're going to just end up with the same old, same old sort of archive full of, uh, you know, cut and paste mm. kind of interviews. So I guess the whole point of questioning is is really just to open up fields of opportunity uh, to explore new avenues. So, you know, if you if you come at the problem from a different angle, you 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 know, from from the input side, you're certainly going to come at a different angle from the output side of it. That's that's really what. Uh, the whole aspect of, of questioning is all about. And yeah, just having a very different line of questioning is going to give you a, a very different line of answers. Mm, excellent. And so you've handballed it back to me. Well done. So I'll have a go. I'll, I'll <laughs> rise, to, one, I'll rise to the challenge. Rule number one, always answer a question with a question. Carry on, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> right, I was ready for that too. <laughs> now, uh, started out uh, just drinking the book Mental as Anything Story. In your introduction there, Stuart, you say, and I'll quote you, what I've enjoyed most about this journey is my unashamed, indulgent wallowing in a deep and muddy pool of nostalgia. Okay, um, why was it such an enjoyable experience? Because not all nostalgia is enjoyable. Yeah, look, it's it's the stuff of life. I mean, to me, mental as anything, I discovered in November 1979, so that's almost to the day, uh, 44 years ago, where I was, I guess, 16 with a face full of... Um, of uh, pimples and trying to <laughs> trying to figure out the meaning of life. Uh, here I am, forty four years later, still trying to figure out the meaning of life, which is probably why I wrote the book on the mentals, to say, gee, what did that all mean? Where where did that time go? And and what have we learned from all of this? But the the the, the whole thing with uh, with the mentals and wallowing in the nostalgias, they were the soundtrack. To my upbringing, it was almost autobiographical, and I think mm. this is the amazing thing with the band, is that they held a mirror up to Australia. You know, they upended the cultural cringe, and all of a sudden we were seeing video clips with Victor Mowers and Hills Hoists and people drinking beer on the beach and broken fly screens and stuff that we could relate to, and. Uh, you know, I was at university when songs like. Uh, too many times came out, mm. uh, you know, experiencing the worst hangovers of my life as they were singing jaunty songs about worst hangovers of your life. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. <laughs> mm. And then I guess as I grew up, they sort of grew up as well and their subject matters kind of changed as well to, to, to meteor kind of topics. So I've always felt that there was a, a parallel there. But, you know, when I think back at it, Henry, uh, back to my university days, mm. back to when I just finished high school, and actually, parallels with mental as anything. I actually got accepted into Alexander Mackey Art College. Yep. So you know, I was doing the art thing. I was playing in bands myself. So there were some very strong parallels there. Uh, the difference was they actually had talent and <laughs> and used yeah. it and went onto something. And whereas I was 
always a wannabe in the music uh, in the music world. I never got off the bottom line of a poster ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wrote a lot of songs, but they didn't go anywhere. Even though you yeah, exactly. you got a contract with somebody. So yeah. what is that? You're hitching a ride on the successful ones, were you uh, there, Stuart? Vicarious well, I, pleasure. <laughs> I, 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 if I remember correctly, I think my modus operandi was to flip over their their forty five singles. Yep. Uh, listen to the B side and then try and copy their B side. So no wonder none of my songs became hits. <laughs> well done. Now, now I'm always interested. You, you, you I, heard it here first, but yeah, before, sorry, I, I, I'm, yeah, keep going. I, I haven't actually answered your question, which was wallowing in the nostalgia. Yes. So before we move on, can I say something about that little period of Australia where it was before random breath testing came in? So, mm. you know, it, it was what we all did back then, and you just wouldn't think of doing it now. But, you know, you had a night out, you went down the pub, you listened to the mentals, you had a great time, you had a skin full of beer. You then got in your car and drove home, and nobody thought twice about that. That's kind of how life was. So there was a degree of simplicity um, attached to life in those days. And I think a lot of my nostalgia is related to the fact that Australia seemed a lot more innocent as a place, a lot more enjoyable and simple mm. as a place. Um, it was also pre-HIV and AIDS. Boy, weren't those good times. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Completely unfettered good times, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all wrapped up, I think, in this thing of just great memories, great times to be alive. And let's not forget that Australia itself was on a bit of a wave. So, you know, I've talked about how the mentals were part of this kind of undoing of the cultural cringe and putting up images, particularly of suburban Australia, which we mm. could relate to. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, you had men at work with Down Under and we'd won the America's Cup and Paul Hogan was advertising, uh, you know, more shrimps on more barbies more often, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. et cetera. And uh, Olivia Newton-John was killing it in L.A. with her Koala Blue franchise. You know, Australia was just on top of the world. And we were part of that, and the mentals were a part of that. So it's all just wrapped up into this great sort of rosy bubble for me. Mm, and rosy bubble, rosy bubble it was. You said that was the best part. <laughs> Uh, most enjoyable part, wallowing. Um, clearly then, if that was the best, there are other parts that might have been good but weren't so good. Was there any part of that journey of this getting this book together that left you just a little flat at all? It was a difficult process because I, I think when I started off, I was open to it being either authorised or unauthorised. I was happy to go both ways on this. Mm -hmm. Pros and cons. You know, if it's unauthorised, that makes for good marketing fodder. Then you can get your PR guru like Brendan Fredericks <laughs> to say, yes. the story, mental as anything, never wanted told. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and here it is. And people go rush out and buy it because of that. Um, as it transpired, as we got into it, I found the guys in the band increasingly open and accessible and honest and self-effacing mm. and they were sharing the good the bad and the ugly because i you know either way i wanted this to be it had to be warts and all or yep. not at all was my approach 
but they were just incredibly open about the good, the bad, and the ugly of their personal lives mm. as well as the band's mm. journey and the band's trajectory. And I sort of, you know, got right to the very end stage of manuscript approvals, thinking, well, if they, you know, if, if they pull the pin now, I still reserve the right to go unauthorized on it. Mm-hmm. But the only thing really was more what I would say is tone. I mean, they were happy to be fully open about their addictions, whether they were drugs and or alcohol, for example, um, and the troubles that some of them had with that. The the big court case of Dave Tuhill, the drummer, versus Mental as Anything, Inc., which was acrimonious as hell and went mm. for four years, that's in there, not one word changed, basically. Uh, there was... Uh, interpersonal, what shall we call, seam lines. So mm. you've got five guys in, in the classic lineup. You've got five guys, very strong creative personalities, very different personalities. Mm. So in a lot of bands, you know, there's a group think where everybody's kind of like the same sort of person, um, variation theme. Mentals were different. You had five very different guys coming from very different places, All five of them were songwriters, which meant you had very different songs and very different takes and very different backgrounds of music, etc. So I identified what I call seam lines and kind of like factions, if you like, because you had, you know, for a a start, uh, you had Aussies versus Kiwis in the band. That's true. You had, you know, private school versus public school people. You had city people versus country people. You had... Uh, drinkers versus smokers that was a very formative one for example mm. um you know, had christians and etc versus infidels <laughs> <laughs> good way of putting it <laughs> yeah. i say so you've got this very motley mosaic uh but all held together by the fact that they were all visual artists as well Mm. So the the art was the glue that held the band together. And ironically, the only guy that didn't go to art school was Peter O'Doherty, has ended up being a very successful visual artist in his own right and and runs very successful exhibitions all over the country and sells a lot of of artwork. So he's by osmosis become an artist. So, (laughs) um, yeah, so it was just sort of balancing, I guess, the viewpoints of all five. And sometimes it was a zero-sum game. Uh, now, I'm incredibly grateful for the two periods that I had, particularly with Greedy Smith. Yep. Uh, one, one was in Singapore in 1998. When they came to Singapore, I was living in Singapore at the time. And we had really immersive discussions about songwriting and also the yeah, you know, the meaning of life in 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 the band, where mm. the band was up to at that point, because they were really mid-career, I guess. The the big hits had dried up. Uh, in fact, all the hits had dried up by 1998. Yes. And you know, what did that mean, and and how were they enjoying the band in its current uh, formation? Then the other um, part of that was a couple of years later where I toured Vietnam with the band for a week. I was actually then promoting my first book <laughs> as it happened. <laughs> and uh, we, yeah, we, we toured Vietnam for a week at the time where it was Reg and Peter's last gig with the band. So it was the last classic lineup gig uh, for them. And that was very immersive uh, 
in terms of also just having great chats with the guys in the band, understanding what was in their heads, why Rich and Pete would be leaving after 22 years, what lay ahead for them, et cetera, et cetera. So balancing up those viewpoints, making sure everybody's voice came through equally in the book, that was, mm. that was a big challenge. But in the end of it, yeah, the, the red pen didn't really come out on the content, for example. It came out more in the tone of saying, all right, did I fully understand mental as anything? Because they were a really unique band, mm. Henry. Uh, there were lots of bands that were different. I mean, you know, at that Ozrock era, you had the, uh, you know, Chisels, who you kind mm. of blue-collar, bluesy rock sort of band. You had the Oils, who were more the political band. You had In Excess, who were the kind of, I don't know, the show ponies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of mentalism anything could be enjoyed on two completely different levels. Mm. One is you could be standing at the back of the, uh, you know, ch insert the venue name here. You could be standing at the back of the venue, just going, "Wow, these guys have just got back to back, wall to wall, charting singles. They played songs that I know all night. Good fun. I can tap my feet to them. Everybody seems happy. They're an uplifting band. Wow, love the mentals." Mm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you can look at their body of work, you can look at their songwriting, you can look at their videos, their artistic output, because they also did group art shows, and say, ooh, gee, I really love what they did there in that very sort of dadaist, uh, absurdist uh, thing, and, you know, appreciate perhaps that they were actually taking the piss. <laughs> and uh, mm. you know, so you could you could view them on, uh, on on two completely separate levels. Appreciate them just purely for the fact they were a fun band to go and watch, or that they were actually making commentary because the guys individually are very very political animals. Mm. They play hundreds and hundreds of different fundraisers for so many causes that they believed in that were very passionate about, and. Yes, that that political aspect never surfaced uh, in their songs because they were a pop band. Yes, a and you know possibly the the closest that you could identify anything remotely political would be if you go back to uh, uh, Espresso Bongo, nineteen eighty, mm. and they had a song called Troop Movement, Troop Movements in the Ukraine. Wow, how how prophetic that lyric was. And then fast forward to 1984 when they had that banging single called Apocalypso, yep. and which was, you know, look, to me it was just a banging tune. And, 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 you know, there were people, you know, Santa sort of, <laughs> Santa sort of with the shaving foam all over his face and people drinking beer on the beach and basically Australia, I don't know, just sort of baking under the summer sun while the rest of the world went to hell in a handbasket. It, it was actually an anti-nuke message in the lyrics, but that mm. didn't matter because it was just this banging tune with, with great slide guitar and Martin Plaza's vocals going all over it. But, you know, so that was political. And then fast forward another, uh, gosh, I'm going to say 20 years, then Reg Mombasa by now in Dog Trumpet just came mm. out last year with the, 
song called Effing Idiots. <laughs> <laughs> which he did. Which is, you know, I said to him, actually, gosh, it, it's taken you nearly 50 years to sum up, sum up everything in two words <laughs> about what's wrong with the world. And it's, it's yeah, effing idiots. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that must have been a damn good question. I'll keep that one for future use. <laughs> you can always, and, and it's always lovely when a person doesn't say yes or no to a question. Time's on the wing. Uh, I, I, something that intrigued me right at the beginning, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about your book. Um, you, quoting yourself, I paint pictures, but I'm not a painter. I make movies, but I'm not a director. I move people, but I'm not a removalist. I do all of this using only words because I'm a writer. Now, the Telegraph in the UK once called me the perfect storyteller, which only proves you can't believe everything you read in the papers. Can we believe everything that's written in this book? <laughs> 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 Think about damned if you do, damned if you don't. Eh? <laughs> I, I think up at the back of the book under sources, yep. it might still be in there. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's, it survived the rigorous editing uh, <laughs> yes. process. Um, what I've said in there is I can vouch for the accuracy of all the quotes in this book. I can't necessarily vouch for the stories they're contained in, though. Mm. So so that's deliciously open, Henry. Oh, and, uh, perfect. What, what, what that's, uh, <laughs> that's called hand-passing yeah. <laughs> responsibility. Yeah. I've faithfully I mean, transcribed what I've been told, <laughs> but whether that's yeah. accurate or not uh, is another thing. No, it's a, it's yeah. a, great, it's a great book, uh, Stuart. Stuart, um, I always ask this question uh, of people who write books. What impact did this whole journey at the end of the day have on you beyond the indulgent uh, foray well, down the footpath of <laughs> nostalgia. It was actually a great learning curve for me. I mean, why do I write stuff and why do I write such a broad range of stuff? Mm. Uh, and I must be a really difficult author to follow because I just skip around. It's not like I'm, you know, your thriller writer or I'm your war history writer. I just follow my my gut in terms of what do I want, do I do, what do I want to know more about? Mm. So at the end of it, yeah, I guess I just had all of these questions about the band. I wasn't satisfied that, you know, there were these characters, uh, you know, that were high, uh, shiny, happy people as we saw them on Countdown. Mm. I knew that there was more behind them than that. You know, it, it comes back to the fact that I view the world through this lens of psychology. Yep. And... And, you know, I think some of the more sort of illuminating discussions I had in the book were not so much with the band themselves, because there was a lot of mythology. I mean, this, and this gets back to, you know, can we believe every word in the mm. book? There was a lot of mythology coming into this project, which I, I like to think we've weeded out in, in so many aspects of, uh, you know, how the band formed. So there's mm. a good year and a half of prehistory, which was glossed over even on their official website to this day, it's not really acknowledged. The fact that they didn't start on the day that Elvis Presley died in 1977, mm. they actually played their first gig in March of 1976 with uh, with a different bass player, etc. So there's a whole lot of mythology. Um, but then more than that, 
uh, I say, the, the more illuminating discussions, as I said, were actually with kind of wives, girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, ex-wives of the band members, because I think through them you really find out the core essence of the characters, and you you know you strip away the nonsense and the public persona, etc. What are you left with? Who who is the guy when he sits down on the couch at night? And uh, you know, in particular, uh, I, I think you know you you come back to sort of killer questions, right? Yep. One of one of the great questions which I think I put to Greedy's ex-wife Amanda, which is, who is the real Greedy Smith? Mm. Is he the guy that wrote "Live It Up," or is he the guy that wrote "The World Seems Difficult"? Is mm-hmm. they very polar opposite sort of songs and she kind of erred on the side of yeah well he's probably a bit more the world seems difficult to be honest mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it was it was just just really peeling back the layers in, in that thing just just to get to the heart of you know who were these people and the heart of it i mean they 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 guys like the rest of us uh, with bills to pay bins to put out etc yep. etc Perhaps just a tad more sort of eccentric and talented than uh, than us, but yeah, th- those to me were the questions that I really enjoyed asking um, because I don't think anyone expected those questions, but they were a good way to actually understand, get to the heart of, you know, what made the guys tick. You know, what yeah. was the motivation? What, you know, what were they thinking and feeling? Uh, you know, for example, uh, I talk about the two SM. What do they call it? The gig of the decade or concert of the decade in 1979. So the Thursday night, they played as usual at the Civic Hotel, packed it out, 400 people. Saturday, mm. at the Opera House, and there's some somewhere north of 150,000 people. Mm. <laughs> what does that feel like? You know, so I got Reg to feel that question, for example. Uh, Martin, what does it feel like to be completely rocking the house at the Australian Made concert tour in 1987. And, you know, he said, wow, I felt like I was born to do this, Uh, Mm. which was amazing because within a few short years, he was just absolutely crippled by a stage fright and anxiety, which he had to sort of essentially self-medicate, if I can quote unquote, um, to just just to to face an audience to, to... you know, have the guts to get out and mm. do his thing on stage, which which is incredible, isn't it? Because it is. you think, you know, there's a good-looking guy with an incredible voice and an amazingly talented songwriter. Like, what more do you want in terms of self-confidence and self-belief in terms of going out there and saying, bang, here it is? And, uh, you know, he, he just struggled with that, which surprises people because he, he, he just looked like he had it all, you know? And... Mm. Um, yeah, but then there's other things. Say, Bird, when they were in London on top of the pops, and they were number three in the UK, and riding high, what did that feel like to go down the streets of London? And Bird went shopping for some fancy suits. He said, "Hello, we we made some coin here. Going to go and treat myself to some sort of uh, Charlie Watts style fancy threads." And uh, what did that feel like to hear your song coming out of the speakers in the shops as you walk down the streets of London, you know, and riding high? 
Uh, there's all of that. And then, of course, there's all the moments in between banging along in your Tarago, dusty roads through the middle of Western Australia, thousands of kilometers to get to a gig that had a, a, a chalkboard out the front that simply said, tonight, banned. <laughs> Absolutely, it's amazing, uh, Stuart. Time's got away from us. You, you, you yeah. you're damn close to that uh, perfect storyteller. Uh, I, I reckon oh. you're closer than you think. <laughs> mm. And it's it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And there's so much more I'd love to chat with you if you had the time and inclination down the track. But congratulations on a great uh, a great book, um, the mental the mental as anything story. It resonates with with a lot of us, particularly people such as myself who who grew up with them. And uh, in congratulating you, um, I'm, sh- I'm I'm looking forward to your your next nonfiction book. Yeah, well, who knows what the next one's going to be. Um, yeah, and here's the thing. It might even be fiction. Ooh, Ooh yes. You heard it here first. Oh, right. wonderful. On Andy's podcast. Absolutely, and I've, I've, I'm keeping that one here. That was Stuart Lloyd. Uh, started out just drinking beer, The Mental as Anything Story. The forward's by Molly Meldrum. Puncher and Watman are the publishers. It's out now in November 3695 trade uh, paperback. Mm-hmm.